Well, again, we just want to say thank you for joining us today for another edition of Grumlaw Church Online, particularly if this is your first time with us. We certainly do not take it for granted that you would decide to carve out a little bit of time and spend it here with us. also want to challenge you, if this is your first time with us, to come back at least three or four times. Uh, the reason that I say that is we think it takes at least a handful of times for you to really get an accurate feel of what we're all about here. And I'm like irrationally confident, in fact, that, that if you do give this a, a couple chances, that this will actually be something that you look forward to to each week, uh, that this will be something that you look forward to building into your weekly rhythm. Now, before we really dive into what I'm going to be talking about today, I kind of have a quick question for all of you. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the fundamental attribution error? Fundamental attribution error. Show of hands. Now, I obviously cannot see everyone watching right now, but I'm guessing that very, very few hands have been raised right now. Now, what the fundamental attribution error is, it's a cognitive bias that, that becomes very, very apparent in particular during these election seasons. Uh, the fundamental attribution error, it causes us to attribute someone's behavior to their character, even though we attribute our behavior to circumstances and environmental factors. Well, the, the reason that he acts that way is because, well, that's just, that's who he really is. The, the, the reason that she behaves that way is because the, that, that's who she really is on the inside. But what's so interesting about this fundamental attribution area, what's so interesting about this cognitive bias is that we never apply this to ourselves. For, for example, maybe you have a coworker uh, who shows up late uh, a couple times to work in a given week, and, uh, and you might jump to the conclusion that at that point, well, the, the reason that he's late is because he's lazy. He's irresponsible. He doesn't respect other people's time. I mean, that's just who he is. He is a lazy, irresponsible human being. Meanwhile, you're late. And never once have you looked yourself in the mirror and thought to yourself, well, the reason that I was late to work today is because I am a lazy, irresponsible human being. That is just who I am. No, no, you have a litany of excuses as to why you were late. It's because your kids were nightmares as you were trying to get out the door. It's because you had car trouble. It's because as you were trying to walk out the door, you got a call from your mother, and she just wouldn't take the hint that you really needed to get moving. See, fundamental attribution error occurs when we assume that a person's actions reflect what kind of person he or she is rather than social and environmental factors. And when it comes to the political scene that's staring at us in the face right now, it sounds a whole lot like this. Dang, these corrupt Democrats. These Democrats are just all the same. Well, what is wrong with these heartless Republicans? Democrats, you know what? They are all socialists. I think I've met every single one of them, and every single one of them, I'm telling you, they are socialists. That's just who they are. Republicans, you know what they are? They're a bunch of racists. I've talked to a bunch of Republicans, every single one of them, even though they can't see it, deep down, they are all a bunch of racists. But, but, but here's the thing. Don't miss this. Mature, emotionally intelligent, curious, empathetic people, you don't fall for that. But yet the political rhetoric feeds this. It, it only further fuels this cognitive bias. And, and because all of you who are watching right now, the people that attend Grumlaw, that show up here weekly, because you're all such mature people that you don't fall for this stuff, you don't fall for this political rhetoric, the next time you see this in someone else, you know what you can do? You can pull them to the side and say, hey, quick question for you. Are, are, are you familiar with the fundamental attribution error? Because I don't know if you've noticed, you are falling for it right now, hook, line, and sinker. In, in fact, actually, I, I learned about this at this fascinating place that I call church, it's called Grumlaw Church. You should come with me because I'm telling you, I think it is really going to help you out. Actually, I, I don't know how that would go over. But seriously, as we talked about last week, when we choose to carry someone's burden, remember Jason talking about this? When, when we listen, we learn, we, we lean in, what, what divides us diminishes 
And, and what unites us, it surfaces. We, we fear less. We understand more. And, and, and as we'll see today, this is actually how the church began, the Christian church. Th- this is, in fact, what grabbed the attention of and changed the world. Now, if you're new around here, we, we've been in this series. In fact, today we are entering into part three of three, again, if you just missed it, called Talking Points, the perfect blend of politics and religion. As I've been joking around about throughout this series, I guess you can judge after today just how perfectly we blended these two worlds together. But if you missed one or both of the first two weeks of this series, I am begging you to head over to grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up there. Or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcasts. But see, see what we've been proposing in this series is that the church actually ought to be the safest place on the planet to talk about anything, including and up to politics. But but the tension that that we've been kind of raising here throughout the series, the tension that Jesus followers should wrestle with is are we willing to put our faith filter, our faith filter ahead of our political filter? Are you As a Jesus follower, willing to put your faith filter ahead of your political filter. Now, as we've seen over these first couple of weeks, this is far easier said than done. In fact, this is actually so difficult to do that most of you, you actually think you've already done it. It's so difficult that most people can't even see that it's something that needs to be done. And many of you, if I'm honest, you're unwilling or frankly, you cannot do this. But if if you call yourself a Jesus follower, we must do this. We must put that faith filter ahead of our political filter. Be be a Christ follower first and a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian second. And and what I hope to convince all of you of today is, is we do the world a disfavor when we attempt to wrap our political ideologies with the teachings of Jesus Because just in case you weren't aware, Jesus did not come to be a footnote to a political platform. He did not come to support or refine an existing political or world order. He, he in fact, came to replace what was in place. As Jason mentioned last week, he didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. And see, when we edit Jesus to fit within a particular political platform, we rob the world of the message that changed the world. We must not and cannot be first and foremost party people. No, no, we must be kingdom people who use our influence to influence our parties. Because, come on, let's be honest with ourselves. When forced to choose between two imperfect candidates— and two imperfect platforms, we we should call out those imperfections. Not not for our sake, not even for our party's sake, but but, but for the world's sake. Y'all, this can't be overstated. This is a really big deal. Early Christians, early followers of Jesus, they lost their lives over this. They refused unconditional allegiance to emperors, even the good ones. And in doing so, they moved the moral and ethical needle in the empire. And how did they do that? They did it by culturally disruptive unity, oneness. In a world that organized around power and wealth and citizenship 
and where people purchase their way up the social ladder, the, the ecclesia of Jesus that the Christian church was disturbing. It, it was unsettling and even dangerous in the empire's eyes because the Christians just would not fall in line. And we'll never be able to fully appreciate just how staggering this was back in the first and second centuries, where were classes of people whose circles rarely overlapped, they came together. They came together voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified God, to worship their crucified Jesus. Yet, y'all, this was baffling to the people of the empire. I mean, why did these people who, who never had anything to do with each other suddenly come together? Well, why did they come across the, these lines that were so stratified, that were so exaggerated? Well, why would they overcome their prejudices and, and their racism? Well, why did they come together to worship their crucified Jesus, their crucified King? It's because the, the message of Jesus was so clear. He said, I, I've come to establish a new kind of kingdom. And, and everyone, regardless of social or economic status, everyone is invited. The, the, the message of Jesus is good news for all people. All have been invited to be a part of this disruptive kingdom. We, we, we can't even imagine as we look at the text today, we, we can't imagine how countercultural Paul's words were to the Roman Gentile Christians because what, what is self-evident to us today in 21st century America, I assure you was not self-evident to those living in the first and second centuries. But, but, but because of the message of Jesus and the power of the cross, what was disgusting and disturbing back then has now become self-evident to us. These were show-stopping words when Paul uttered these words to the early Christian church in Galatia. He said that there is neither Jew nor Gentile. That there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And again, his audience is looking at him going, what? <laughs> and what are you talking about? Surely, yes, there is Jew and Gentile. Like, like Paul, Paul, Paul what, what, what are you trying to propose here? You, you, you tell me now that, that we, we all worship the same God Gentile, which simply means non-Jew. So again, he's kind of encompassing everyone here with Jew or Gentile. He, he, he's saying, a, a Gentile's going, I've never invited a Jew over. And, and they've certainly never invited me over to their house. And, and Jews are thinking, I don't want to associate with Gentiles. Be Gentiles are like icky. I mean, I don't want to get like Gentile cooties. Like they eat weird stuff and they don't follow our laws. Like that's a hard pass on hanging out with the Gentiles. And Paul's going, hold up. Did, did you not pay attention to Jesus? Those days are over. There is a new king in town, and consequently, a new kingdom has arrived. And, and what has previously caused division and created these lines in society, that has all gone away because all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory, Jews and Gentiles alike. And, and, and what used to divide you now has the ability to unite you. Because we all find salvation in the name of Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. We all find unity at the cross. Then, as if this wasn't already disruptive enough, he, he goes on. He makes it worth, worse. He says, neither slave nor free. There's no, there's no slave nor free. 
to, to which we all think, well, well, duh. Everybody knows that, that slavery is wrong, but this was not self-evident back then. In a lot of ways, the entire economy rose and fell based on this principle. It's like, Paul, come on. You're trying to tell me that, that, that God views slaves and masters as equals? You're trying to tell me that a freed man and a person who is under the authority as a servant or a slave under somebody else, that those people are somehow equal? I mean, Paul, come on. Maybe you need a quick lesson here in how the world works. Maybe you need a quick lesson in the economy. Everybody knows that some were born to be ruled and others to rule. That's just kind of how the world works. And Paul and Jesus are going, not anymore. Not in this new kingdom. See, when we come together in this new ecclesia, in this new church, this new community, that ecclesia, that, that's the word where we get church from, but, but church really should have never entered into our English vocabulary because it makes us think of a building. Paul was talking about a community. Jesus was talking about a community. In this new ecclesia, in this new community of followers of Jesus, we are all equal. God died just as much for you as the you beside you. And Paul goes on and he makes it worse. He says, nor is there male and female. And the men are thinking, what? You're trying to tell me that my wife has just as much value as me, and my daughter has just as much value as my son? Now, 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 this is important to keep in mind. Slavery back in these days, what wasn't like what we understand slavery to be here or what it was in America. Slavery in America, it was driven by racism. It was driven by the color of one's skin. Slavery in the first century was something entirely different. Everyone had the potential to become someone else's slave. Everybody around you had the potential to maybe one day become your slave. You miss your house payment, they come after your house and your daughter. You miss your horse payment, and they come after your horse and your son. And in a system where anybody has the potential to become somebody else's slave, the dignity of women drops off a cliff in a way that we cannot even begin to understand. Uh, So into that world, here comes Paul trotting in saying, in this new kingdom, with this new king, women and men, they are equals. God views women in the same way as he does men. He he does not place a differentiation there. He he sees women and men as having equal dignity, as having equal value. It was shocking to this audience. And he wraps it up by saying, for you are all one, oneness, unity in Christ Jesus. Paul, this is hard for us to get our heads around. You're saying that all people regardless of social status, gender, heritage. We, we all share the same dignity in this new kingdom. We, we, we all have equal value regardless of what the world might tell us, regardless of the social lines, the economic lines in our world. You're, you're telling that God views us as all equals. I mean, if this caught on, the, the fabric of the empire would unravel. And wouldn't you know what it did? And Jesus, he predicted it. In an incredible passage of scripture that we find in Luke chapter 16, one of the four books that documents the life of Jesus, Jesus utters these words. He says, until John the Baptist 
the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides. Until John the Baptist, this guy that we read about at the beginning of the New Testament, until he stepped onto the scene, this was kind of the guy that began to predict the arrival of Jesus. Until that point, the law of Moses and the message of the prophets were your guides. The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that that was your guiding principle. Those 613 laws, that was what drove your behavior day in and day out. But the good news of the kingdom of God, there is a new king on the scene. That the good news of the kingdom of God, of Jesus is now being preached and everyone, everyone is eager to get in. People are gonna be curious about this. Nothing will be able to stop this movement. This isn't just an adjustment. This is a complete overhaul. This is something entirely new. This upside down kingdom that Jesus predicted and introduced. And the crazy thing is, is that every single one of you who are watching right now, we have all been invited into it. And even more than that, as Jesus followers, we've been called to steward this kingdom in our communities, in our nation, in our world. This is precisely why it would be so foolish that the local church would ever become divided over political parties or political issues because y'all, those parties will one day be over. But Jesus, Jesus will still be on his throne. Now track with me here. 45 years after Paul was executed in Rome, in in Nero's Rome, Paul is is now long gone. Peter is long gone. These are the two kind of heroes of the early Christian faith. In fact, a lot of people suppose that with the death of these two guys, I mean, the Christian church would just kind of slowly fade away. But despite all the odds, despite the fact that like the heroes of the faith were suddenly dead, it it continues to flourish. It continues to thrive. And about 45 years after Paul's executed in Rome, Pliny the Younger, who was the Roman governor in that area now known as Turkey. He he wrote this letter to Emperor Trajan. And and he was asking for direction regarding the interrogation of Christians. He he, he knew that that Christians, for whatever reason, were a threat to the empire and and were being ordered to be in prison, but he didn't really understand why. So so he sought to figure out the why behind this. He's going, okay, I I know this has just kind of been the the way it always has been here in the Roman Empire, that we're supposed to arrest, that we're supposed to punish, that we're supposed to try to eradicate Christianity kind of from the face of the Roman Empire, from the face of the planet, but... But I don't really understand why. I don't really know why. So before he sends this letter to the emperor, Pliny the Younger, uh, he does some investigating. He sends out some spies. He he, he wants to figure out what's going on within this sect, within this cult, within this thing that we now refer to as Christianity. What, What is it that makes Christians so dangerous that this precedent has been set where we arrest and, and we try to get rid of Christianity? He he then actually wrote a report about what he discovered and Crazy enough that this letter has been preserved for us now for thousands of years. These are plenty of the younger's words, the governor in that area. He says, the sum and substance of their fault or error. He's going, that there has to be some fault or error, right? I mean, surely they're doing something wrong. They're doing something terrible that threatens the very fabric of the Roman Empire. So he goes, that the sum and substance of their fault or error, here is what I have discovered. Here is what I have found, why they are such a threat to the Roman Empire. The sum substance of their fault or error had been that they were, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. I mean, can you believe that? 
It's like they're getting together and they're hanging out one day a week. I mean, and they're doing it before dawn. He, he first finds out that they're, they're meeting on Sunday mornings. But back at this point in history, Sunday was a work day. And so they met really early. They actually met before the work day began. But by the way, if we moved our services to 5.30 a.m. on Monday mornings, how many of you would keep showing up? I'll help you. Probably about that many. But, but these are our people. This is how committed they were. This is how changed their lives were. So he says, you know, they become accustomed to meeting on a fixed day before dawn, bright and early in the morning. And listen to this. He goes, I found this out. They sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. When they get together and they're hanging out, they're singing songs. They're singing songs to this Jesus guy as if he's some sort of God. I mean, this is very, very troubling information for the empire. And then worse yet, you got to think at this point, he's like, I found it. I figured out. They bind themselves by oath. Okay, I mean, Pliny the Younger has discovered it. He's like, I know what they're up to. They're binding themselves by oath, the whole singing thing, getting together thing. That's not so bad. But now I I figured out that they're binding themselves by oaths. I mean, they they are cultish behavior, right? Dangerous. Surely we have them now. But but much to his surprise, they were binding themselves by oath, not to some crime. He's like, "It, it wasn't what we suspected, but... They were actually binding themselves not to commit fraud, not to commit theft, not to commit adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. He's, they're taking an oath every week to not be fraudulent, that when they make commitments, they're honest in those, that they're not misleading, that they don't steal from each other, from the people in their communities, from the Roman Empire, they pay their taxes, they don't commit adultery, they don't cheat on their wives, they don't cheat on their husbands, they're, they're honest people when it comes to sexual purity, uh, they don't falsify their trusts, that when, when they set up a contract, they abide by it, they do what that contract says, in order to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. That, that, that they're, again, that they're marked by their integrity. If they make a promise that you can trust one of these followers of Jesus to hold up their word, that's their oath. And, and I got to think at this point that Plenty the Younger is thinking to himself, no wonder I have not heard any complaints about these Christians. In fact, dare I say it out loud, these are some of the finest people in our community. These are some of the finest people in the entire Roman Empire. I mean, shoot, rather than arresting them, I, I, think, I think maybe we need more of them. But by the way, can you even imagine if every week when, when Christians gathered at all these different churches all across the U.S. of A, that, that we made this oath and we stuck to it, that more than anything, we, we, we took an oath and we held each other accountable that we would be marked by our integrity, by our honesty, that we made a promise that we were known as people who, who followed through. How, can, can you even imagine how that would, would change our communities, our nation, our world? So, so plenty, as you can imagine, is going, seriously? <laughs> That's it? Th- this these are the people that, that are supposedly undermining the empire? 
This is the group of people that we're, we're, we're arresting and attempting to disband? Scratching his head going, Emperor, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. See, in a culture that worships strength and victory and conquest, the, the, the ruling class found this pitiful worship of a crucified, defeated God in their eyes appalling. Was baffling to them. But for many, that this upside-down kingdom introduced by Jesus, it was appealing. Christians, they refused to abandon the sick because they no longer feared death. As, as, G, as Jason covered last week, this, this whole practice of infanticide, they, they'd take in abandoned babies because they knew that every person was made in the image of God and all people have equal value and dignity in God's eyes. That they would extend dignity to their slaves and their servants. They would extend dignity to women and children, people who have at this point in history had no social status whatsoever. That this movement against all the odds, despite massive persecution throughout the centuries, it continued to survive, and not only survive, but thrive. Y'all, th- this isn't according to the B-I-B-L-E. You can read about this stuff in history books. When, when you read about the persecution that the early Christian church went through in the first and second centuries, it should have never made it out alive. It should have never survived even the first century. Thousands of years later, the French philosopher, Francois-Marie Arouet, better known by his pen name, Voltaire, he famously predicted that Christianity would be dead within 100 years of his death. By the 1880s, he wrote that there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. On April 8th, 1966, some of you will recall this, Time Magazine ran a cover story story famously posing the question, is God dead? And, And they assumed that the answer was obvious. If not dead, at least ready for hospice. But here we are thousands of years removed from the bloody persecution of the Christian church in the first and second centuries. 250 years removed from Voltaire. 50 plus years removed from the time cover. God not only is not dead, his church continues to grow and his spirit is moving even in the midst of a pandemic. Meanwhile, if you're keeping track, the Roman Empire, done. Voltaire, dead. Time Magazine, let's be honest, magazines have a shelf life at this point. To the Roman Empire, this new kingdom, it was appalling. But yes, many found it appealing. And and wouldn't you know it, just as Jesus predicted, it became contagious. Against all the odds, a a Nazarene sect who worshipped a crucified rabbi with no territory, no military, no authority, no political power or standing, and a message built around what was considered two pathetically weak ideas of love your enemy and love one another, it not only survived, it thrived. It shaped Western civilization. And every single person who's watching right now who identifies as a Jesus follower, you are a part of that movement. And as such, we dare not become divided over party lines knowing one day that those parties will be over. 
if those who came before us were divided in ways that we can only imagine, yet we're able to find common ground at the cross, come on, all of us watching right now, we have no excuse that the culturally disruptive unity, it shocked, it shocked the world. And eventually their message, it would change the world. And and come on, I I get this. We run the risk of being divided over some very important issues that you might be very, very passionate about. And and there's a very real chance that you may never understand how another Jesus follower could be for what you're against, that they could be against what you are for. And I'm telling you, I'm encouraging you that you should vote. And when you vote on that Tuesday in November coming up here, you, you should vote with your law of Christ-informed conscience, with the, with the law of Christ as your guiding principle. Hopefully, every single Jesus follower who's watching, you are spending daily time with Jesus. You are literally committing to prayer this election. You, you are voting with your law of Christ-informed conscience, not your law of family-informed conscience, not your law of society, not the law of Facebook, your law of Christ-informed conscience. Don't vote trying to make a bunch of people happy. Vote your conscience, what you feel, God is leading you towards. But in the meantime, and even after the results are in, because I'm pretty sure that people are still going to be divided, let's do what the early church did. Remember Paul's words in Galatians. He said, share, share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, You are obeying what Jesus has already very clearly commanded us to do. Because when you help me carry my burden, you'll have a better understanding of where I sit and why I stand where I do on issues. And in that process, I'll gain a better understanding of where you stand as well. And come on, as Jesus followers, even if we don't, in doing so, we will obey what Christ has already commanded us to do. Because of the unity that we find at the cross, you do not have to agree with me or understand me to love me. Because we find unity at the cross, oneness under Jesus. We can disagree politically and love unconditionally while we pray and we work for unity. Y'all, the local church is the hope of the world. It is plan A and there is no plan B. So as the local church, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, since you are a part of the local church, let's do this. Let's not miss the invitation and what I believe to be the opportunity of a lifetime. The invitation to follow the king who reversed the order of things. Let's, as we've been talking about throughout this series, listen, let's learn, and let's love. And together, if we get this right, we'll make our communities better. We'll make our nation better. The world will be better. And that's not hyperbole. Because once upon a time, a handful of Jesus followers multiplied to the point that the empire threw up their hands and embraced the crucified God. The same empire that at one point was seeking to destroy that same movement. And if we get this right, again, 
perhaps, I think, the world will notice. The, the, the world will certainly become less divided as followers of Jesus are again marked by their love, their unity, their oneness.